And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Mark, chapter 8, starting at verse 31, as we continue to see and savor Jesus Christ. Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters long. We are literally at the center of the book. And interestingly enough, we are at a very significant crossroads in Mark's gospel, a turning point, a defining moment. The focus of the first half of Mark reveals much about the identity of Jesus, and the climax of that first half is what Pastor Steve read and preached on last week, where Jesus turns to His disciples and He asks them one of the most important questions He could possibly ask them, who do you say? that I am. A lot of people are saying a lot of things about me and my identity. Never mind them. What do you say? And and in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Peter replies, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are God's anointed King. What a glorious, powerful, climactic moment in this book. But now, as we move into the second half of Mark's gospel, The conversation between Peter and Jesus moved from Jesus' identity to Jesus' mission. If Jesus Christ really is the king, then what next? How, uh, through what means, will Jesus usher in his kingdom? So with that question in mind, why don't you now stand with me one more time and let's hear the proclamation directly from the king himself regarding his plan and his purpose and what's going to be at the center of his kingdom. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and we're just going to read three verses. Word of God says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us who are sinners. And thank you that you have shown mercy through the offering up of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for your help this morning. You know that I am an inadequate preacher as I come into this pulpit with the weight of your word on my shoulders. My friends here know that I am an inadequate preacher. But what we all agree on here is that you are an adequate God. And this is your holy and precious and inspired word, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit this morning would work through the word and bring about change, would bring about conviction, would bring about encouragement, would bring about hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you may be seated. A few years ago, a church had purchased a particular Sunday school curriculum that had put out a series of lessons for children that were focused on Holy Week, uh, those days leading up to and climaxing with Easter. 
And when the pastors of this church were examining the curriculum, they were surprised to see that absent from these Holy Week lessons was any mention of Easter or the cross. And the publishers explained, well, the reason why it's not in there is that that Easter is a, a special time in churches, and, and because of the graphic nature of the crucifixion they wrote, we are focusing instead on the Last Supper, when Jesus shared a meal and spent time with the people He loved. We, we made this choice because the crucifixion is simply too violent. And they go on to write in, the, in their letter of explanation, we're using these formative years to build a foundation for that eventual decision by focusing on God's love and telling preschoolers that Jesus wants to be my friend forever. The publishers of this curriculum deem the cross to be too much, too confusing, too violent, too hard to hear, too offensive. It's easier to focus on Jesus wanting to be your forever friend. But but it's not just children and Sunday school curriculum publishers that might have a hard time with the cross and the bloody death of Jesus. While Jesus Christ is admired and applauded in many ways in many different religions, the point at which the world begins to distance itself from Jesus is the cross. Islam regards Jesus as a great prophet, but not as a dying savior. Eastern religions consider Jesus as one who brings knowledge and enlightenment, not substitutionary atonement. Atheists affirm that Jesus taught helpful morals, but see the cross as a tragic ending. You are seeing a a de-emphasizing of the cross, even in many churches, in preaching and teaching, and in songs. There are churches that don't like to sing about the blood of the Lamb, or that old rugged cross. It seems weird. It seems primitive and uncultured. It's embarrassing. It offends our 21st century suburban sensibilities. And we'd rather sing songs about how God is crazy about us and how we're crazy about Him. There's something about the cross that is repulsive that we'd rather not think about. But people having trouble with the cross is nothing new. People scandalized by the idea of a Messiah who comes to a violent end can be seen going all the way back to the beginning, back even to Jesus' first and most devoted followers. We've just read how Peter is incredulous, even outraged, as Jesus begins to to reveal the implications of his kingship in regards to his mission. And yet, nevertheless, a dying Christ was the greatest news in the universe, even though Peter could not see it at that moment. It's the greatest news for Peter. It's the greatest news for you. And there are are there three observations I'd like to make about the text this morning. It really works out nicely. There's three verses, and each one of them you can draw a point from. Uh, And the first thing that I want us to see here is the absolute necessity of the cross. The absolute necessity of the cross. Look with me at verse 31. This follows right on the heels of Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ. It says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The text says that Jesus began to teach them. 
Now again, this is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. That word began suggests something new here uh, that, that will continue on from this point forward. It's a new level of training for the twelve. Now, Jesus has mentioned his death and his suffering and his resurrection before, but up to this point, his statements have been veiled and cryptic. Uh, They've been references that are hard to understand. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. What does that mean? Well, you know, because you've read the end of the story. But it was very mysterious and hard for for others to understand in the moment. But Jesus doesn't talk that way now. Look at verse 32. It says, he said this plainly. Peter has discerned with God's help who Jesus really is. He's the king. He's the Christ. But knowing Jesus' identity is not enough. Peter and the disciples need to know what Jesus came to do. How will Jesus accomplish and fulfill his messianic mission? What will he do now to usher in the full expression of the kingdom of God? And so now he begins to answer these questions plainly, without parables and enigmatic statements. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. If you have a pen or a pencil, you may want to uh, take that and circle that word must in your Bibles. Circle that word must. It's a very powerful word. It's not that the Son of Man might suffer. It's not that it's a possibility that this may happen. Instead, he says the Son of Man must suffer. Must. That word day in the Greek, it means absolute necessity. And at this part in their training, it was essential for his disciples to know this. His rejection and his sufferings and his cross are not an accident. Jesus was born for this very purpose. And the disciples need to realize that what was to come was at the very heart of God's sovereign plan. I remember meeting once with an unbeliever who was interested in in Christianity. And so we read through the entire book of Mark together over the course of several weeks. Mark is a great book to to read um, alongside of of an unbeliever. And, And this guy, he was shocked when he discovered that the death of Jesus was part of the plan, that, that this was all intentional. You mean Jesus did this on purpose? This is one of the things that you and I may take for granted because we're so familiar with the story. But there are many who they may know that Jesus died on a cross, but they think it was an accident. Or that Jesus' mission went in a direction that he did not originally intend. That things got out of control That's not the case. The cross was plan A. God did not create the world, and then when Adam and Eve sinned, he thought, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't see that one coming. Better come up with plan B. Oh, I know, I'll send Jesus to clean up the mess. Likewise, God did not send Jesus to Israel to immediately set up an earthly kingdom, and then, whoops, the Jews reject him, and suddenly Jesus finds himself on a cross. How'd that happen? In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, we're told the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus. And they are sad, and they are depressed, and they are discouraged that Jesus died. And who should join them? Who should happen to join them on the road? None other than the risen Lord. And they don't know that it's Jesus at first. And Jesus, I think, gets a little uh, exasperated at these guys... Because he ends up telling them in Luke 24, verse 25, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is saying that all of these things were already planned long before they happened. And he takes them to the scriptures, to the Old Testament, written centuries before the fact that speak of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The great reformer Martin Luther said, there is not a word in the Bible that can be understood apart from the cross. It's exactly right. All of scripture becomes clear when read through the the lens of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only was God's plan announced in the Scriptures centuries in advance, it was in the mind of God even in eternity past. The Bible says that Christ was foreknown as the Lamb of God before the foundation of the world. In eternity past, it was decreed by the Father that the Son must be rejected, must suffer many things, must be put to death. There was no other way, there was no other path but the path of the cross. And so in verse 31, we see the absolute necessity of the cross. But moving into verse 32, we also see the apparent foolishness of the cross. Look at verse 32 for Peter's response. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That word rebuke, epitimao in the Greek, is a very strong and forceful word. It's the same word Mark uses earlier in his gospel when Jesus rebukes the demons. Now, Mark doesn't record the content of Peter's rebuke, but we get a taste of it actually in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, 22 says this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Some translations say, never, Lord, never, Lord. Now, why? What accounts for Peter's strong reaction? Peter believes that Jesus is the Christ with all of his heart. And that's exactly the problem. Remember, Christ is not a name. It's a royal title. Christos. Or in the Hebrew, Messiah. Messiah. Anointed one. And, and Peter's beliefs about the Christ would have reflected the beliefs of the general Jewish population of Israel in that day. That a Messiah would come, a royal figure from the line of King David, hence he would be called the son of David. And he would come and be God's representative to the people. He would usher in a new kingdom, fight Israel's battles, overthrow the enemies of the Jews. Messiah would march into Jerusalem and throw the Roman occupiers out and bring in a golden age for Israel. And nowhere, nowhere in these messianic expectations was the thought of a Messiah who would come and then die. King David was not great because he was killed by his enemies, but because he conquered them. Surely Messiah, surely the Christ would do no less. That was the expectation of the people. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And what happened after Jesus fed the multitudes? What was the immediate reaction of the people? They wanted to make him king by force. 
the, the, messianic, <clears throat> the messianic zeal and expectations of the people are so high that, that had Jesus wanted to, he could have had at that moment an army of thousands to draw swords and march triumphantly to Jerusalem. No question about it. Now, Christ is not the only title for Jesus in this passage. Look at what else he's called in verse 31. Do you see that? <clears throat> the Son of Man. By the way, that's, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, his fav- favorite self-designation. You add up the, Jesus' usage of the Son of Man in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's probably like 80 times that it's mentioned. And that phrase, Son of Man, would evoke in the mind of the Jews a divine figure in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel, in a night vision, sees the Ancient of Days. Now, that's clearly a reference to God. But then Daniel sees another figure, and he's called the Son of Man. And Daniel says in in chapter 7, Daniel 7 verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. When Peter hears Son of Man, that's what he's thinking. A king who will rule the world through a kingdom that will not pass away. So how does death fit in with that? So as Jesus is saying this stuff, none of this is clicking with Peter. None of this makes sense. It seems almost unbiblical. And this provokes a strong reaction in Peter. This is never going to happen to you. You're the Christ. You're the Son of Man. You can walk on water. You can raise dead people. You can create food out of thin air. Surely the time for victory is at hand. And he takes Jesus aside. And he sharply rebukes him. Can you imagine this? Peter taking Jesus aside. Like a teacher might take a pupil aside. To correct a student. Like a boss taking an employee who is getting mixed up on the job, taking him aside, doesn't want to embarrass him in front of the co-workers, taking him aside and saying, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. It's exactly how Peter is treating Jesus. In the mind of Peter, this is foolish talk. This is all wrong. This doesn't make any sense. Consider the audacity of Peter. Here is Peter, standing face to face with Jesus. And who is Jesus? He is the very Word of God in the flesh. He is the full expression of the wisdom of God. And Peter says, now you listen to me, Jesus. I heard your Word and I don't like it. Let me show you wisdom. This will never happen to you. Never, Lord. No, Lord. Essentially, Peter has a plan for what he thinks Jesus should do. Peter has the script written already. And Jesus' plan doesn't fit into the script that Peter has. The script that Peter is so convinced is right, that he's so convinced it is the best way, it seems so wise. 
And we may smugly look at Peter and say, I can't believe Peter would actually do something like that. Can you imagine? That that Peter would think he's wiser than Jesus. That Peter would think that his plan is better than Jesus. That Peter would get angry at the idea that God would not approve of Peter's plan. Who could ever be that stupid? Be careful. Be very careful. Have you ever seen the wisdom of God displayed in this book and you decided to ignore it? Have you ever questioned the wisdom of God in His dealings with you in your life? Has there ever been something that you desperately wanted to see happen? Something you prayed for? Something that you were absolutely convinced was right and, and, the, and you were convinced it was the best way and God does not give you what you want? In fact, God ends up sometimes giving you the exact opposite of what you want. And do you ever question God's wisdom? Do you ever get angry with God about that? I'm seeing blank faces, so I must be the only person in the room who is familiar with those kinds of struggles. So indulge me while I preach to myself. We're all like Peter. We all tend to have this script for our lives. And we're convinced that our script is the very best way. And if God really loves us, then He'll agree with the script. He'll rubber stamp it. He'll agree with our wisdom and fulfill all of our dreams and our desires. Sometimes we don't want to follow God's plan as much as we just want Him to sign off on ours. I suspect that I'm not the only one in the the room who can identify with Simon Peter who is perplexed by, confused by, and even stubbornly resistant to the wisdom of God. Wanting to exalt my way, my will, my plans over His. Maybe you are tightly holding a script in your hands that you've written. And God seems to be writing a different story for you. It's not turning out the way you want it to. May God help us submit our script to His. Trusting His divine eraser. That, trusting that He will edit and change as He sees fit according to His wisdom. And that His way is best. It is not wrong to have hopes and dreams and desires about certain things. And it is very right to pray for those things and ask God for those things that are on your heart. But, but let's hold that script loosely as we come to God and say, yes, this is what I want, but not my will, but yours be done. And may God help us in realizing more and more that those two words, never, Lord, should never fit together in our speech and in our attitude towards God. May God give us a heart and a posture of humble submission when we encounter the wisdom of God in His Word and in our lives. May we realize that He is the teacher and we are the students. Let's not get that mixed up. So we, we see the absolute necessity of the cross. We see the apparent foolishness of the cross but also, I'm reminded in verse 3 that in the end, we see the divine wisdom of the cross. 
If Peter's rebuke was sharp, Jesus gives it back to him tenfold. Look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now that, that seems rather harsh at first blush, that Jesus would call Peter Satan. Isn't that a little over the top, Jesus? Actually, it's entirely appropriate. Some may admire Peter for his desire to keep Jesus safe. But Jesus says that the kind of words coming out of Peter's mouth aren't an expression of loyalty. They are satanic. There is something going on in this scene that is not visible to human eyes. A spiritual warfare that the disciples and Peter himself are not aware of. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In the Greek, the word used is apage, which means go away or be gone, Satan. Be gone, Satan. Now, does that expression sound familiar to you? Where else have you heard Jesus use that expression? Not sure where? Let me help. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This chapter details that powerful scene in the desert where Jesus is being tempted by the devil 40 days and 40 nights. And Matthew tells us about three specific temptations. And the climax of the account is the third temptation. Matthew chapter 4, look down at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now stop there for a second. Have you ever wondered why this is such a significant temptation? I mean, why is Satan's offer to possess all the kingdoms of the world and their glory a temptation to Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, isn't he? Doesn't that mean he's going to get the kingdoms of the world anyway? Aren't the nations the inheritance of Jesus? Will not the Father give all of these things to the Son anyway? So why is the offer of the kingdoms a temptation if He's going to give them anyway? Answer. If Jesus takes Satan up on His offer now, if He receives kingly glory now, what won't happen later? The cross. The cross doesn't happen. The temptation for Jesus is not as much to get something now that he's already going to get later. The temptation is to get the kingdoms now and avoid the cross later. The Father's path for the Christ to receive the fullness of the kingdom takes him to the cross. But in the wilderness, the devil is saying, You can have all this now, Jesus. You don't need to go to the cross, Jesus. You are the Christ. Take what is yours immediately and avoid that stupid, foolish, horrible, scandalous, infinitely agonizing cross. That's at the heart of the devil's temptation. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone! There's that word, hypage, again. Be gone, Satan. 
For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Do you see a connection there between the temptation in the wilderness and what we see happening between Peter and Jesus? It's the same thing. It's the same temptation. Peter is saying to Jesus, listen, you are the Christ. You don't have to die. As Christ, the kingdom is yours. Take it now. And once again, Jesus is facing the devil. This time it's not in the wilderness. This time it's in the circle of his most loving and loyal supporters, including Peter. And this Peter, who just a few verses prior confessed Jesus as the Christ due to the illumination of God the Father who opened Peter's understanding... This same Peter, a few verses later, now becomes an unwitting pawn, a mouthpiece for Satan. Peter, like all of us sinners, finds his own sinful, selfish tendencies working in tandem with Satan's goals. The devil will not leave Jesus alone. You think the only time Jesus got tempted was for those 40 days in the wilderness? Think again. He will not leave this alone. Jesus is determined to go to the cross, but Satan is determined to deter Jesus from his messianic mission. But again, Jesus resists the temptation of Satan. In Matthew chapter 16, he says to Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. That word stumbling block, again, carries the connotation of a a temptation, something that can cause me to stumble. He says, get behind me, hapage, Satan. And then notice what Jesus says next in verse 33. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is relying on flawed, sinful, corrupt human wisdom. When man hears about a suffering and dying king, that sounds stupid. Who wants to follow something like that? That's foolish. That's weak. How is any kind of victory going to be achieved that way? How can our enemies be crushed that way? Man's wisdom says, strike now, Jesus. Take up arms and we'll follow you, Jesus. Expel the Gentiles from the land and let's return Israel to her former glory. Do that, Jesus, and we're with you all the way. The defining characteristic of sinful, worldly, human wisdom is to turn away from the wisdom of God in favor of what seems right to us. Peter may have been excused for his reaction if anyone else besides Jesus had told him that Jesus was going to suffer and die. But when the revelation comes from the lips of the Master himself, a refusal of that revelation in favor of what seems right to him is the height of human arrogance, of of rebellion and a blind trust in the wisdom of man. You and I do the same thing every time we sin. Every time we take a path contrary to the wisdom that God has laid out in the Scriptures. Every time we compromise with sin and say it's no big deal because nobody's watching and it won't hurt anyone. Every time we try to solve our problems like the world does through anger, through fighting, through manipulation, through trying to impress people. All of these things come from the wisdom of man. Whenever we write our own script, and God doesn't endorse that script, and we get mad at God, and we want to turn our backs on Him and give up on Him, or try to somehow manipulate God into doing what we want, that's the wisdom of man. 
And whenever, ever, we try to diminish the gospel or minimize the importance of the cross or say salvation comes through faith in Christ's work on the cross plus our good deeds or try to preach a message that is easier for people to stomach compared to the message of the cross or to try to have Christianity without a cross. That's the wisdom of man. Jesus is laying down a challenge to Peter, and Jesus is laying down a challenge to us. Because the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ are at the center of God's plans for universal redemption, will that cross be at the absolute center of our lives and of our ministries? Will we be unashamed of the cross? For the word of the cross is folly, is foolishness to those who are perishing, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The cross is the emblem of the power of God and the wisdom of God, which is superior to the wisdom of man. Case in point. If Simon Peter gets what he wants from Jesus, what happens? We tend to think that if God really loves us, he'll give us what we want. He'll give us those things we feel that we desperately need. He'll rubber stamp our script. Peter wants Jesus to seize the fullness of the kingdom of his kingship now, to not suffer and not die, to expel all evildoers from the land and bring judgment on them and rule and reign. So if Jesus listens to Peter's rebuke, and Jesus says, you know what, Peter? Fine. I'm a nice God. I don't like saying no. We'll do it your way, Peter. Then what? Then Jesus leads Peter and his followers into Jerusalem, and they obliterate the Romans. With Jesus on their side, they're unstoppable. Jesus sets up his throne in Jerusalem, brings in a golden age of power and prosperity to Israel. The pagan nations around them, including Rome, are under his feet and serve him. And there's Peter and the rest enjoying their victory, living it up. Maybe they get high positions in Jesus' government, and they have a great time. And Peter lives for another 40, 50, 60 years, grows old, dies, and wakes up in hell, where he'll be forever. Forever in pain and torment, and cut off from the presence of God. End of story. Credits roll. Congratulations, Peter. You got what you wanted. Or another possible alternate ending is that Jesus may say, okay, Peter, you want me to do it that way? You want me to bring bring judgment on the evildoers now? Fine. Peter, die! And judgment starts with him and the disciples, and everybody is gone. Sometimes, friends, God does not give us what we want because he is kind and merciful and loving and wise. Because he is all wise, he knows things that we don't know. And he knows what will happen if we get what we want. We think we know what will happen if we get what we want, but we don't. We don't have all wisdom. Sometimes we ask for things, but we, fully, we don't fully realize what we're asking for. Peter doesn't realize what he's asking for. Peter believes that the Messiah can bring redemption without a cross. Those depressed disciples 
on the road to Emmaus who encounter the risen Christ, who are so disappointed that Jesus wound up on a cross, their words are very interesting in, uh, in Luke 24, verse 20. Listen to this. This is what they say. Our chief priests and rulers delivered him, Jesus, to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You see what they're saying? They were expecting salvation, redemption, and rescue without a cross. Yes, Daniel 7 speaks of a son of man who will have dominion and power and authority over the whole world. But just two chapters later, in Daniel chapter 9, we are told that the anointed one, the Messiah, will be cut off. Sometimes when it comes to us in our Bibles, we have selective listening, don't we? We love, to, we, we, we love and cling to and gravitate towards those verses that we like. Especially those that seem to fit in with the script that we write. And we put our fingers in our ears and, and, and pretend that we can't hear the other parts of the Bible that make us nervous. Again, that's the wisdom of man, of, of man determining for ourselves what parts of God's Word are good and right and relevant. We can be very Peter-like in that regard. Peter loves God and has a wonderful plan for his life. A plan for Jesus that he thinks is genius. But God had a much bigger and better plan for Messiah. The son of man in Daniel is also the suffering servant of Isaiah. And Isaiah says of this servant that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Peter and those disciples on the road to Emmaus and the Jews in Jesus' day missed one crucial and critical reality, that their biggest enemy was not Rome. The thing that was keeping them from enjoying and experiencing the kingdom was not Caesar. Their biggest enemy and the thing that threatens to shut them off from the kingdom is their own sin. Their biggest problem was God's judgment against sin. Their biggest threat was that the wages of sin is death and hell. They didn't realize that if Jesus endures no cross, they can enjoy no kingdom. The only people that will enjoy the eternal, glorious reign of King Jesus forever and ever are people who have been washed clean of their sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. But Peter needed to realize in that moment was that Jesus Christ, the Messiah was marching toward Jerusalem to actually give Peter what he was looking for. Peter wants to see and enjoy and experience the rule and reign of Jesus, the King, forever. And Jesus is going to the cross to guarantee that that happens. On the cross, 
Jesus bore the wrath of God as a substitute for sinners. The sins of Peter and all of God's people were placed on Jesus and punished in Jesus. And you know what's cool? What's cool is that Peter comes to realize that later. Peter, who started out so repulsed by the notion of a dying Messiah, becomes the first great preacher of the cross. And his cross preaching led to the salvation of thousands. Isn't it good that God can use you even after you make mistakes? Even after you push back against God? Hear this excerpt from Peter's very first sermon after Jesus had rose from the dead. He says this in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. You know what's so beautiful about that sermon? Peter has come full circle. In that sermon excerpt, we see all the elements that Jesus was teaching Peter in Mark chapter 8 that Peter initially hated so much. Jesus said these things must happen according to the plan of God. Jesus said that he must be rejected, that he must be killed, that he must rise again because he is God's Christ. These things must happen. It is the only hope of man. All of those elements are in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. He was once ashamed of these things, but here now he preaches and boasts in the cross. And all who are not ashamed of the cross, all who place their hope in the, and their trust in what Jesus did on the cross, placing their, their hope on his sacrifice, not on their good deeds, not on their ability to keep the law of God, solely placing their trust and hope on the work of Christ. All who do so will find that their sins are taken away and totally forgiven by God. You know, the rationale that the publishers of that Sunday school curriculum that they gave for removing the cross from their, from their curriculum for kids is ironic. They, they said, we're, we're using these formative years to build a foundation for that eventual decision by focusing on God's love and telling kids that Jesus wants to be my friend forever. That's ironic. Because first of all, the only way we can be friends with Jesus forever and be reconciled to God is if we embrace His work on the cross. The natural state of, uh, of man is not to be friends with God but to be at war with God and God to be at war with us. There's enmity between sinful man and God. But the other thing, the other irony is that they said they they wanted to help the kids focus on God's love. But is there a better display of God's love for sinners than the cross? Greater love has no man than that he lays his life down for his friends. There is no greater love than that. The cross where God sent his own son to lay down his life for rebels. The apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus loved Peter and you and me and all His people too much to actually listen to Peter's ridiculous wisdom. Jesus and His wisdom saw something glorious that Peter and his wisdom could not see. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him. There was a joy that was placed before Jesus. Jesus saw something that nobody else could see. Jesus saw that, that, yes, the cross is horrible. Yes, the cross is shameful. Yes, the cross is going to be very painful. No, it's not going to be enjoyable to experience the wrath of God. But on the other side of that is glory. There's joy. There is a redeemed people who can actually be in the kingdom because of what I'm going to do on the cross for the joy that was set before him. Thank God that He is all good, all merciful, that He is loving, and that He is wise. He knows what He is doing, and He knows what He's doing in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this reminder of the superiority of the wisdom of God over the wisdom of man. How ironic it is that this thing that appears to, the, to, to man's wisdom to be so weak and so foolish, that thing being the cross, ends up being the centerpiece of God redeeming man, of God restoring the cosmos, of God ushering in a new heavens and a new earth with people of every tribe, tongue, and language around the throne of God enjoying the kingdom forever. And Father, thank You that you, you love us so much that there are many times where we may pray to You and ask for something and desperately want something, and You love us too much just to rubber stamp everything that we ask for. Sometimes You love us by saying no. We're reminded in, by, by our Lord elsewhere in Scripture that, that if Evil fathers know how to give good things to their children when they ask. How much more does our Father in heaven know? So that means that whenever we ask you for something, God, your response is always something good. You always have something good, even if it's no. Thank you, Father, again. In Jesus' name, amen.